I'm gay. And I'm your host, Geraldo Rivera. For some reason, you're tuned in to Geraldo's Edge Game. Episode 23, Michael Jordan. That's not the title, just shout out Michael Jordan. Okay. Happy Easter. You may know I am very Catholic. I am not confirmed, but I'm probably more Catholic um, than your average. Than your average Catholic. Since my, you know, my Catholic childhood, I have explored other religions, other beliefs. But every Easter, I like to uh, come crawling back to what really means something to me. None, none of these, none of these other games these people like to play. Okay, yeah, you know, it might be fun to explore a little bit. You know, you know, sow your wild oats or whatever in other religions. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's all about Christ. It's all about Catholic Christ specifically, not, not these other, not these other Christ-like imitations. Okay. And that's all I want to say. That's, that's all the preaching I'm going to do today. I'm, I'm, this is not, you know, I'm not religious. Not a religious um, master, you know. I'm not certified. I don't have a, a license for that. Not anymore. Not since the accident. But I just wanted to say my piece. Hope you got a lot of eggs. Last episode, we discovered many details about Rachel Dolezal's life that some may have found extremely disturbing or sexy, to say the least, myself included. In her book, uh, Rachel detailed occurrences of non-consensual sexual contact with multiple members of her family um, throughout her childhood. And, you know, looking back, I would say some would argue that this is the root cause of the mental illness known as transracialism. Some would say this. I agree. Now, my heart goes out to, to all victims of abuse, sexual or otherwise, you know, Ukraine, Palestine, BLM. With this in mind, I decided to find a book 
that could help me explore the myth of sexual consent and consent in general. Um, and I'd like to read just a smidge of this book from a hot upcoming writer. You may have heard of him, Noam Chomsky. In this book, we sketch out a propaganda model and apply it to the performance of the mass media of the United States. This effort reflects our belief, based on many years of study of the workings of the media, that they serve to mobilize support for the special interests that dominate the state and private activity, and that their choices, emphases, and omissions can often be understood best and sometimes with striking clarity and insight by analyzing them in such terms. Perhaps this is an obvious point, but the democratic postulate is that the media are independent and committed to discovering and reporting the truth, and that they do not merely reflect the world as powerful groups wish it to be perceived. Hold up. And that they do not merely reflect the world as powerful groups wish it to be perceived. Leaders of the media claim that their news choices rest on unbiased, professional, and objective criteria, and they have support for this contention in the intellectual community. If, however, the powerful are able to fix the premises of discourse to decide what the general populace is allowed to see, hear, and think about, and to manage public opinion by regular propaganda campaigns, the standard view of how the system works is at serious odds with reality. The special importance of propaganda and what Walter Lippmann referred to as the manufacture of consent has long been recognized by writers on the public opinion, propaganda, and the political requirements of social order. Lippmann himself, writing in the early 1920s, claimed that propaganda had already become a regular organ of popular government and was steadily increasing in sophistication and importance. We do not contend that this is all the mass media do, but we believe the propaganda function to be a very important aspect of their overall service. In the first chapter, we spell out a propaganda model which describes the forces that cause the mass media to play a propaganda role, a propaganda role, the processes whereby they mobilize bias and the patterns of news choices that ensue. In the succeeding chapters, we try to demonstrate the applicability of the propaganda model to the actual performance of the media. Institutional critiques such as we present in this book are commonly dismissed by establishment commentators as conspiracy theories, but this is merely an evasion. We do not use any kind of conspiracy hypothesis to explain mass media performance. In fact, our treatment is much closer to a free market analysis, with the results largely an outcome of the workings of market forces. Most biased choices in the media arise from the pre-selection of right-thinking people, internalized preconceptions, and the adaption, adaptation of personnel to the constraints of ownership, organization, market, and political power. Censorship is largely self-censorship by reporters and commentators who adjust to the realities of source and media organizational requirements, and by people at higher levels within media organizations who are chosen to implement and have usually internalized the constraints imposed by proprietary and other market and governmental centers of power. 
There are important actors who do take positive initiatives to define and shape the news and to keep the media in line. It is a guided market system that we describe here with the guidance provided by the government, the leaders of the corporate community, the top media owners and executives, and the assorted individuals and groups who are assigned or allowed to take constructive initiatives. These initiators are sufficiently small in number to be able to act jointly on occasion, as do sellers and markets with few rivals. In most cases, however, media leaders do similar things because they see the world through the same lenses, are subject to similar constraints and incentives, and thus feature stories or maintain silence together in tacit collective action and follower, <laughs> leader-follower behavior. Of course. The mass media are not a solid monolith on all issues. Where the powerful are in agreement, there will be a certain diversity of tactical judgments on how to attain generally shared aims reflected in media debate, but views that challenge fundamental premises or suggest that the observed modes of exercise of state power are based on systematic, systemic factors <clears throat> will be excluded from the mass media even when elite controversy over tactics rages fiercely. We will study a number of such cases as we proceed, but the pattern is, in fact, pervasive. To select an example that happens to be dominate, <clears throat> dominating the news as we write, this is, uh, I think, late 90s, consider the portrayal of Nicaragua under attack by the United States. Uh, in this instance, the division of elite opinion is sufficiently great to allow it to be questioned whether sponsorship of a terrorist army is effective in making Nicaragua more democratic and less of a threat to its neighbors. The mass media, however, rarely, if ever, entertain opinion or allow their news columns to present <clears throat> materials that Nicaragua is more democratic than El Salvador <clears throat> and Guatemala in every non-Orwellian sense of the word. That its government does not murder ordinary citizens on a routine basis as the governments of El Salvador and Guatemala do, that it has carried out socioeconomic reforms important to the majority that the other two governments somehow cannot attempt, that Nicaragua poses no military threat to its neighbors but has in fact been subjected to continuous attacks by the United States and its clients and surrogates and that the U.S. fear of Nicaragua is based more on its virtues than on its alleged defects. <clears throat> the mass media also steer clear of discussing the backgrounds <sighs> and results of the closely analogous attempt of the United States to bring democracy to Guatemala in 1954 by means of a CIA-sponsored invasion, which terminated Guatemalan dem <clears throat> democracy for an indefinite period. Although the United States supported elite rule and helped to organize state terror in Guatemala, among many other countries for decades, actually subverted or approved the subversion of democracy in Brazil, Chile, Chile, and the Philippines. Again, among others, is constructively engaged with terror regimes on a global basis and had no concern about democracy in Nicaragua as long as the brutal Somoza regime was firmly in power. Nevertheless, the media take government claims of a concern for democracy in Nicaragua at face value. Elite disagreements over tactics in dealing with Nicaragua is reflected in public debate, but the mass, de media, <clears throat> mass media, in conformity with the elite priorities, 
have coalesced in processing news in a way that fails to place U.S. policy into meaningful context, systematically suppresses evidence of U.S. violence and aggression, and puts the sand, Sandinistas in an extremely bad light. In contrast, El Salvador and Guatemala, with far worse records, are presented as struggling toward democracy under moderate leaders, thus meriting sympathetic approval. These practices have not only distorted public perceptions of Central America realities, they have also seriously misrepresented U.S. policy objectives, an essential feature of propaganda, as Jacques Ellul stresses, the propagandist naturally cannot reveal the true intentions of the principal for whom he acts. That would be to submit the projects to public discussion, to the scrutiny of public opinion, and thus to prevent their success. Propaganda must serve instead as a veil for such projects masking true intention. This isn't propaganda, by the way. The power of the government to fix frames of reference and agendas and to exclude inconvenient facts from public inspection is also impressively displayed in the coverage of elections in Central America, discussed in Chapter 3 and throughout the analysis of particular cases in the chapters that follow. When there is little or no elite dissent from a government policy, there may still be some slippage in the mass media and facts that tend to undermine the government line if they are properly understood, can be found, usually on the back pages of the newspapers. Wow, this is pretty dated. This is one of the strengths of the U.S. system. It is possible that the volume of inconvenient facts can expand, as it did during the Vietnam War, in response to the growth of a critical constituency, which included elite elements from 1968. Even in this exceptional case, however, it was very rare for news and commentary to find their way into the mass media if they failed to conform to the framework of established dogma, postulating benevolent U.S. aims, the United States responding to aggression and terror, as we discussed in Chapter 5. During and after the Vietnam War, apologists for state policy commonly pointed to the inconvenient facts, the periodic pessimism of media pundits, love that alliteration, and the debates over tactics as showing that the media were adversarial and even lost the war. These allegations are ludicrous, as we show in detail in Chapter 5, but they do not have the dual advantage of disguising the actual role of the mass media and, at the same time, pressing the media to keep even more tenaciously to the propaganda assumptions of state policy. We have long argued that the naturalness of these processes with inconvenient facts allowed sparingly and within the proper framework of assumptions and fundamental dissent virtually excluded from the mass media, but permitted in a marginalized press, makes for a propaganda system that is far more credible and effective in putting over a patriotic agenda than one with official censorship. Interesting. In criticizing media priorities and biases, 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 we often draw on the media themselves for at least some of the facts. This affords the opportunity for a classic non sequitur in which the citations of facts from the mainstream press by a critic of the press is offered as a triumphant proof that the criticism is self-refuting 
and that media coverage of disputed issues is indeed adequate. That the media provides some facts about an issue, however, proves absolutely nothing about the adequacy or accuracy of that coverage. The mass media do, in fact, literally suppress a great deal, as we will describe in the chapters that follow. But even more important in this context is the question of the attention given to a fact, its placement, tone, and repetitions, the framework of analysis within which it is presented, and the related facts that accompany it and give it meaning, or preclude it understanding. That a careful reader looking for a fact can sometimes find it with diligence and a skeptical eye tells us nothing about whether that fact received the attention and context it deserved, whether it was intelligible to the reader or effectively distorted or suppressed. What level attention... What level of attention it deserved may be debatable, but there is no merit to the pretense that because certain facts may be found in the media by a diligent and skeptical researcher, the absence of radical bias and de facto suppression is thereby demonstrated. Obviously, one of our central themes in this book is that the observable pattern of indignant campaigns and suppressions, of shading and emphasis, and of selection of context, premises, and general agenda is highly functional for established power and responsive to the needs of the government and major power groups. Did you guys have a good Easter? Uh, a constant focus on victims of communism helps convince the public of enemy evil and sets the stage for intervention, subversion, support for terrorist states, an endless arms race, and military conflict, all in a noble cause. At the same time, the devotion of our leaders and media to this narrow set of victims raises public self-esteem and patriotism as it demonstrates the essential humanity of country and people. Uh, the public does not notice the silence on victims in client states, which is as important in supporting state policy as the con concentrated focus on enemy victims. It would have been very difficult for the Guatemalan government to murder tens of thousands over the past decade if the U.S. press had provided the kind of coverage they gave to the difficulties of Andrei Sarkov or the murder of Jerzy Papilusko. Papilusko? Papilusko. It would have been impossible to wage a brutal war against South Vietnam and the rest of Indochina, leaving a legacy of misery and destruction that may never be overcome if the media had not rallied to the cause, portraying murderous aggression as a defense of freedom and only opening the doors to tactical disagreement when the cost of the interests they represent became too high. The same is true in other cases that we discuss and too many that we do not. Okay. Well, what a preface. Oh, fuck yeah, baby. Oh, my God. Ooh, my allergies are acting up. It's almost like I'm allergic to propaganda. <laughs> it's almost like I'm allergic to consent, you know? Know what I mean? Know what I mean, fellas? Ladies? 
This is a very serious topic. I apologize for uh, treating it so lightly, so flippantly. <sighs> Chapter one, a propaganda model. <laughs> the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. Makes sense. In countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopolistic control over the media, often supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serve the ends of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work where the media are private and formal censorship is absent. This is especially true where the media actively compete, periodically attack and expose corporate and governmental malfeasance, and aggressively portray themselves as spokesmen for free speech and the general community interest. What is not evident and remains undiscussed in the media is the limited nature of such critiques, as well as the huge inequality in command of resources and its effects both on access to private media system and on its behavior and performance. A propaganda model focus on this, focuses on this inequality of wealth and power and its multi-level effects on mass media interests and choices. It traces the routes by which money and power are able to filter out the news, fit to print, marginalize dissent, and allow the government and dominant private interests to get their messages across to the public. The essential ingredients of a propaganda, propaganda model or set of news filters fall under the following headings. Number one the size, concentrated ownership, owner wealth, and profit orientation of the dominant mass media firms. Number two, advertising as the primary income source of the mass media. Three, the reliance of the media on information provided by government, business, and experts funded and approved by these primary sources and agents of power. Number four, flack as a means of disciplining the media, and five, anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. These elements interact with and reinforce one another. The raw material of news must pass through successive filters, leaving only the cleanse residue fit to print. They fix the premises of discourse and interpretation and the definition of what is newsworthy in the first place and they explain the basis and operations of what amount of what amount to propaganda campaigns the elite domination of the media and marginalization of descendants that results from the operation of these filters occurs so naturally that media news people that media news people frequently operating with complete integrity and goodwill are able to convince themselves that they choose and interpret the news objectively and on the basis of professional news values. 
Within the limits of the filter constraints, they often are objective. The constraints are so powerful and are built into the system in such a fundamental way that alternative bases of news choices are hardly imaginable. In assessing the newsworthiness of the U.S. government's urgent claims of a shipment to a shipment of MIGs to Nicaragua, don't know what MIGs are, the media do not stop to ponder the bias that is inherent in the priority assigned to government-supplied raw material or the possibility that the government might be manipulating the news, imposing its own agenda, and deliberately diverting attention from other material. It requires a macro alongside a micro view of media operations to see the pattern of manipulation and systematic bias. Let us turn now to a more detailed examination of the main constituents of the propaganda model, which will be applied and tested in the chapters that follow. One, size, ownership, and profit orientation of the mass media, the first filter. In their analysis of the evolution of the media in Great Britain, James Curran and Jean Seton describe how in the first half of the 19th century, a radical press emerged that reached a national working class audience. This alternative press was effective in reinforcing class consciousness. It unified the workers because it fostered an alternative value system and framework for looking at the world and because it promoted a greater collective confidence by repeatedly emphasizing the potential power of working people to affect social change through the force of combination and organized action. This was deemed a major threat by the ruling elites. One MP asserted that the working class new paper, newspapers inflame passions and awaken their selfishness contrasting their current condition with what they contend to be their future condition, a condition incompatible with human nature and those immutable laws which Providence had established for the regulation of civil society. The result was an attempt to squelch the working class media by libel laws and prosecutions by requiring an expensive security bond as a condition for publication and by imposing various taxes designed to drive out radical media by raising their costs. These coercive efforts were not effective, and by mid-century they had been abandoned in favor of the liberal view that the market would enforce responsibility. Curran and Seton show that the market did successfully accomplish what state interventions failed to do. Following the repeal of the punitive taxes on newspapers between 1853 and 1869, a new daily local press came into existence, but not one new local working class daily was established through the rest of the 19th century. Kieran and Seton note that indeed the eclipse, the eclipse of the national radical press was so total that when the Labour Party developed out of the working class movement in the first decade of the 20th century, it did not obtain the exclusive backing of a single national daily or Sunday paper. One important reason for this was the rise in scale of newspaper enterprise and the associated increase in capital costs from the mid-19th century onward, which was based on technological improvements along with the owner's increased stress on reaching large audiences. The expansion of the free market was accompanied by industri industrialization of the press. The total cost of establishing a national weekly on a profitable basis in 1837 was under 8,000 pounds with a break-even circulation of 6,000 copies. By 1867, the estimated startup cost of a new London daily was £50,000. The Sunday Express, launched in 1918, spent over £2 million before it break even 
it broke even with a circulation of over 250,000. Similar processes were at work in the United States where the startup cost of a newspaper in New York City in 1851 was 69,000. The public sale of the St. Louis St. Louis Democrat in 1872 yielded $456,000 and the city newspapers were selling it from 6 to 18 million in the 1920s. The cost of machinery alone or even very small newspapers of even very small newspapers has for many decades run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. In 1945, it could be said that even small newspaper publishing is big business and is no longer a trade one takes up even lightly, even if he has substantial cash or takes up at all if he doesn't. Thus, the first filter, the limitation on ownership of media with any substantial outreach by the requisite large size of investment was applicable a century or more ago and has become increasingly effective over time. In 1986, there were some 1,500 daily newspapers, 11,000 magazines, 9,000 radio, and 1,500 TV stations, 2,400 book publishers, and seven movie studios in the United States. Over 25,000 media entities in all, but a large proportion of those among this set who were news dispensers were very small and local, dependent on the large national companies and wire services for all but local news. Many more were subject to a common ownership, sometimes extending through virtually the entire set of media variants. Ben B. stresses the fact that despite the large media numbers, the 29 largest media systems account for over half of the output of newspapers and most of the sales and audiences in magazines, broadcasting books, and movies. He contends that these constitute a new private ministry of information and culture that can set the national agenda. Actually, while suggesting a media autonomy from corporate and government power that we believe to be incompatible with structural facts, as we described below, Bagdikian also may be understating the degree of effective concentration in news manufacture. Bagdikian has long been noted that the media are tiered with the top tier as measured by prestige resources and outreach comprising somewhere between 10 and 24 systems. It is this top tier along with the government and wire services that defines the news agenda and supplies much of the national and international news to the lower tiers of the media and thus for the general public. Centralization within the top, top tier was substantially increased by the post-World War II rise of television and the national networking of this important medium. Pre-television news markets were local, even if heavily dependent on the high tiers and a narrow set of sources for national and international news. The networks provide national and international news from three national sources, and television is now the principal source of news for the public or was. The maturing of cable, however, has resulted in the fragmentation of television networks and slow erosion of the market share and power of the networks. Table 1, which I won't show you, but you can research yourself, provides some basic financial data for the 24 media giants or their controlling parent companies. This compilation includes the three television networks, ABC through its parent capital cities, CBS and NBC, through its ultimate parent, General Electric, the leading newspaper empires, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Wall Street Journal. I'm not going to list all these. You get the point. 
and other cable TV systems of large and growing importance, those of Murdoch, Turner, Cox, General, Taft, Storer, Westinghouse. Many of these systems are prominent in more than one field and are only arbitrarily placed in a particular category. These 24 companies are large profit-seeking corporations owned and controlled by quite wealthy people. It can be seen in Table 1 that all but one of the top companies for whom data are available have assets in excess of $1 billion, and the median size is $2.6 billion. It can also be seen in the table that approximately three-quarters... Okay, this is all about the table that I'm not going to show you, so basically what, I'm, what it's saying is that the monopoly on the media outlets and it's getting smaller and it sucks and it sucks I think so <sighs> the greater profitability of the media in a deregulated environment has also led to an increase in takeovers and takeover threats with even giants like CBS and Time directly attacked or threatened this has forced the management of the media giants to incur greater debt and to force and to focus even more aggressively and unequivocally to profitability in order to placate owners and reduce the attractiveness of their their properties to outsiders. They have lost some of their individual autonomy to bankers, institutional investors, and large individual investors whom they have had to solicit as potential white knights. While the stock of the great majority of large media firms is traded on the securities markets, approximately two-thirds of these companies are either closely held or still controlled by members of the originating family who retain large blocks of stock. Have you watched Succession? Uh, this situation is changing as family ownership becomes diffused among large numbers of heirs and the market opportunities for selling media properties continue to improve. But the persistence of family control is evident in the data shown in table blah. Also evident in the tables, enormous wealth possessed by the controlling families. Okay, we get it. There's rich families. Cool. They own all the stocks. Okay, this is that we're just analyzing numbers here. We're just analyzing numbers, baby. Tables. All right. Two, the advertising license to do business, the second filter. In arguing for the benefits of the free market as a means of controlling dissident opinion in the mid-19th century, the liberal chancellor of the British exchequer, exchequer, Sir George Lewis, noted that the market would promote those papers enjoying the preference of the advertising public. Advertising did, in fact, serve as a powerful mechanism weakening the working-class press. Karen and Sutan give the growth of advertising a status comparable with the increase in capital costs as a factor allowing the market to accomplish what state taxes and harassment failed to do. Noting that these advertisers thus acquired a de facto licensing authority since, without their support, newspapers ceased to be an economically viable venture. Before advertising became prominent, the price of a newspaper had to cover the cost of doing business. With the growth of advertising, papers that attracted ads could afford a copy price well below production costs. This put papers lacking in advertising at a serious disadvantage. Their prices would tend to be higher, curtailing sales, and they would have less surplus to invest in improving the sal salability of the paper. 
For this reason, an advertising-based system will tend to drive out of existence or into marginality the media companies and types that depend on revenue from sales alone. With advertising, the free market does not yield a neutral system in which final buyer choice decides. The advertiser's choice influence media prosperity and survival. The ad-based media receive an advertising subsidy that gives them a price marketing quality edge, which allows them to encroach on and further weaken their ad-free rivals. Even if ad-based media cater to an affluent upscale audience, they easily pick up a large part of the downscale audience and their rivals lose market share and are eventually driven out or marginalized. In fact, advertising that has played a potent role in increasing concentration even among rivals that focus with equal energy on seeking advertising revenue. A market share and advertising edge on the part of one paper or television station. Fuck me, dude. Dude, books fucking suck. Books are fucking heavy and shit, and it's like paper, and you get cum and lube on it. This is fucking annoying. Dude, fuck books. Fuck reading. You know? Fuck books on tape. Just podcast, dude. Who needs to fucking read? There's no propaganda in podcasts. That's certainly impossible. Um... From the time of the introduction of press advertising, therefore, working class and radical papers have been at a serious disadvantage. Their readers have tended to be of the modest means, a factor that has always affected advertiser interest. One advertising executive stated in 1856 that journals are poor vehicles because their readers are not purchasers and any money thrown upon them is so much thrown away. Okay, well... What do you guys think? <laughs> what do you guys think? This this is obviously a dated book. It acknowledges that uh, it is not... It, it, it tries to consider the advent of the internet at some point. I think this was written in the 80s, maybe released in the 90s. I don't know. But clearly... It's it's a lot of, um, I think what the book will get to, and if you choose to read such a magnificent book, which I clearly have not, I, I clearly could never read something like this um, in its entirety. And even if I tried, I would be lost in a sea of, of overly, um, it's very verbose. You know, I, I think it gets its point across, but could be much more succinct. And in a way, I think it that's what makes it ideal for a podcast. And I know I'm ruining it by interrupting. I just really can't continue reading it right now. It's a heavy book and it's hard to read one-handed and it's uh, quite a boner kill. But uh, yes, if you consider legacy media, the people who still watch TV... I don't know who still watches television, um, at least in a traditional, like who watches cable uh, tend to be older or people who 
I don't know. I mean, I, obviously I'm biased because I mean, I grew up with cable, had cable. I wasn't a weird homeschool kid, but uh, I grew out of that. I don't know. Like you just in college, you just don't, I didn't watch TV. And then I got out of school and I was like, I'm, why am I going to waste time with TV? Also, cause my dad, we, we stopped paying for cable cause you know, you learn it's a monopoly really early on when it's the only cable company in all of, you know, all of Pennsylvania, basically. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people stopped, but there are still a lot of people that watch it and it kind of blows my mind. Well, it's weird because now it's like kind of an add-on thing. A lot of people have their streaming services that they pay for, they pay for their subscriptions, most ad-free. So then you have to say, okay, so where are the ads? You know, clearly this propaganda model can't end prematurely just because now we offer ad-free services. And the, and the reality is that the, the propaganda is literally directly in uh, anything with Netflix or Amazon's, you know, name slapped on it, anything that they have uh, specifically approved of. And it's really like, it's very insidious. And in the way you start seeing these sorts of things, you kind of can't stop. And, you know, a lot of them will seem uh, conspiratorially minded. If you point them out, people will say that's ridiculous. That seems preposterous. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it might just be my algorithm is feeding me what I like because I like to look at the propaganda. I like to recognize it and do nothing about it. I'm still going to watch the show. You know, somehow I, I, I sat through that fucking bullshit called space force on Netflix. Um, you know, they get their best Hollywood team to make a show about, you know, satirizing space force and is generally like, you know, supposed to feel very left leaning. And then also at the same time, very anti-China, anti-Russia, like the board, like the most, like the corniest, like stereotype of being like this, the Russian, the Russian spy and the, you know, in the space race against China, like it's real it's real, but the way that they're presenting it is very like, it's, it's so crude. Uh, it shows people getting like vaccinated literally in the show. It doesn't say, it doesn't talk about vaccinations. It just shows people and labs like getting IM injections, like in the background, doesn't say anything. Doesn't, doesn't specify just, you know, just wants to throw it in there subtly, you know? Um, uh, there's other examples in that that shows that also the show sucks, which is, which is really disappointing is that it's not even good fun. It's not even funny propaganda. That's, that's, that's how to make it effective is to, you know, but it's so boring that you can't help but notice all this other bullshit unless you're really that enthralled by Steve Carell and, um, fucking John Malkovich and, uh, all the other people I don't really give a fuck about on that show. But um, I watched all of it cause I was like, there's no way this, you know, it's too, it's, it's, I don't know if you like that show. Good for you, man. I know, I know you, you probably must love the office too. And you just thought this would be good. This should be good. Um, I know that's only one example. 
But without going down a, you know, a YouTube rabbit hole, a YouTube glory hole of uh, conspiracy and propaganda in the mass media and our entertainment, that's just where my mind goes many times. And I think, now here's my, my, my thought. Clearly, clearly, and also, and also like Netflix, I forget, I forget the exact ties, but you know, obviously Amazon, Jeff Bezos owns like Washington Post. You know, they all own their all like they also own branches of legacy media in some sense. I don't know what Netflix owns. I haven't looked into it. I just assume it's all someone owns something. Every everything is owned by something else. Uh that may seem unrelated. And it may but a lot of it makes sense. A lot of it makes sense when you look at the like the largest media conglomerates, at least in the United States. Um, which I'm sure you're not from, so this is probably irrelevant to you. You're probably in a country where you don't even think about propaganda, or if you do, uh, no one fucking cares. Um, you probably live in some shithole where you still think your elected leader is uh, good, or that you felt like you had a say or that whoever you elected actually mattered. You're probably from one of those countries, statistically, uh, based on my demos, based on my demographic information. But nonetheless, uh, <laughs> my theory is that because we have so many avenues now for media and propaganda. Okay, yeah. We're not going to touch on the social media part too. Obviously, you get tons of it through Facebook, tons of it through Instagram, through Meta, through Twitter, through whatever you want. You don't. We don't need more sources of it. But I want to say that people are hyper aware of it or at least like to joke about it. Maybe they aren't doing anything about it, but at least they draw attention to it themselves and maybe internalize some kind of second thought whenever they're, you know, seeing anything as they're scrolling mindlessly uh, through TikTok. What I would like to see is more propaganda in pornography. And I know what you're thinking uh, doesn't that already exist? And it probably does. It actually probably, it, it, it might, it might. I'm not, I'm not sure how well connected, um, the major porn production studios are. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't researched those people. I don't know how those people are connected to anyone, but just, you know, Theoretically, I, I, you know, if we get to a point that people will focus more, the thing about porn is that people will ignore 
they're more likely to ignore every everything else. They're more likely to ignore the propaganda, even if it's there, because sex is you know is the best way to distract someone. They're they're coming to they're coming to the porn site already distracted because they're already horny. They already have this other goal in mind. They're they're not going to X videos to find accurate information about anything or to, you know, be exposed to messaging that they wouldn't realize programming that they wouldn't understand um, or acknowledge. Whereas if someone goes on Twitter, someone goes on Instagram, someone goes on Facebook, whatever, whatever, they've come to learn that they will be, that they will come across something political in nature, something that involves something serious or the new something, you know, happening in the world. They'll come across facts. But I think porn is still this untapped market where people will not will not view it with any sort of filter. And why would they? That that sounds retarded. Um, but I think that's if if I if personally if I were trying to get a message out subliminally, uh, subtly, insidiously, I would start putting it in like porn. I would start contracting like big porn companies just to just to like tweak small things, you know, like just change the plot, you know, do some do some plots about China, you know, do some plots about uh, uh, Russia, you know, just slip it in a little more Palestinian action going on, you know, more more. Jewish representation in pornography. Okay. Not saying that that doesn't already happen, but it's, it's in a way that is more than just what the people want to see in terms of a fetishization of it. Uh, clearly when there's things happening in the news, people will start Googling like hot Ukrainian chick, you know, that's, I've gotten ads for, for hot Ukrainian chicks when I check my ex videos and I say, hmm, how else, you know, how could this be a bigger plot? How can we make more money from this uh, via porn? And clearly, like, when I am coming up with ideas for my own videos, I'm like, yeah, I guess I should be, like, somewhat topical. You know, I should make something satirizing, parodying, parodying something recent, you know? I should be the SNL of porn, what a horrible title. Um, but I'm not, that's not, that's not what I'm, I mean, clearly you could view what I'm saying now, if you listen to this as its own, you know, I can, I can be propaganda. I, I'm down actually to, to spout propaganda. Uh, I don't think I'm the right mouthpiece for anything like that, but I'm totally like down to, I mean, I'm doing it already. I'm doing it already. Cause I, I mean, I get my news sources from my news sources are Instagram and I try to avoid that. Um, my news sources are Instagram and fucking and, 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 and podcasts and comedy podcasts, which is the worst, which is even worse because I mean, you're getting it filtered through a guy who, has spent his life trying to be a comedian and not studying and not really analyzing. Some of them are smart. To, they're smart, but they're not like, it's not their job to be really that methodical with the, the way they think and the way they present their ideas. They're meant, they're, they're meant to be funny. And so I've worked the way I like 
listen to news, the way I listen to anything serious, I'm immediately thinking, how can I make like, what's funny about this? Like what makes me laugh about this situation? And, and also the way other people are reacting to the situation. This is not groundbreaking, but uh, that's how I think when I try to make anything now is like, oh yeah, I'm also probably an idiot. I shouldn't have a say. Should I really be contributing to any of it? Uh, should anyone be contributing any, any of it? Is anyone, is anyone a fucking expert on anything? Um, no, they're not. Um, but hopefully you understand the irony of me jerking off while I say anything, uh, that it is not meant to be, I don't know how else to make it more serious that this is a joke. I don't know how to make it more clear that I'm, uh, that this is fucking a waste of your time. than by having my penis out. <laughs> I don't know how else to do that, but I'd like to see more propaganda and porn. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. You know, I, I would like to see a little, I would like to see bots. Uh, I would like to see Russian bots, you know, in my comments, in my comment section. Whatever. Whatever. I, I think the future is porn. And so I'm investing in porn now. I think porn is the untapped market for controlling the public, for controlling society. If I mean, in, in a way it already is, but seemingly not in the States. There's no major porn conglomerate, I think in the States. And I think that's, I actually think that's why, I mean, I know Pornhub has like branches here, obviously that people manage, I think. When I remember looking it up, they were like a Canadian company or something, I don't know, I forget. But I know X videos is based in like, like Czechoslovakia, you know, and, um, who knows what interests they have, you know, and what ties they have with their own, what relation they have to their own government. I know that's just based in Czech. Maybe, you know, the people who actually run it could be based actually anywhere. They just might be for tax purposes. But in terms of the platform that helps disseminate uh, this information, these videos, and then also makes a decision ultimately of what to censor, um, Clearly, Pornhub has gone in, in one direction, and now X Videos has maintained uh, its, I don't know, its sovereignty. I don't know. Like, it's, it's, it still lets you post whatever. I have not had a single video censored since, since transitioning to X Vids. Um, and Pornhub is in a state of, of Americanization of corporate wokeness to appease. It's, you know, I guess both it's like ad sponsors. I've never heard of anyone like limiting payment processors, but that seems to be a really common thing now is to just block people's money. 
uh, whether it's through by blocking like truckers bank accounts or like blocking wires to a country or just stopping doing business or doing taxes or it's weird to do that to a fucking porn company. It blows my mind. This is like a, this is, it's not a, it porn has become hyper. It's treated as like a political entity in a way. I don't know. That's probably going, that's probably reaching away too far, but like, I don't know. It's just a funny, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. Um, even though, you know, you can do that to one streaming site, one, one tube site. Um, but that's not going to stop porn. You know, it's not going to stop child pornography. It's not going to stop revenge porn. It's not going to stop any of the other awful shit you see on the internet. Um, it just makes people dig a little deeper. This is not me saying you should legalize any of that or make it, you should let people keep posting it, but I'm just saying it's, it's rampant everywhere else. And, uh, you know, cutting ties with just one porn company is not, it's just the, one of the biggest virtue signals any, any company can do. So looking forward to all of porn being censored someday. You know, I think that's not, it's not really hard to imagine. I mean, other countries have tried to do it. They have done it. I mean, VPNs exist now, but, you know, before a general, like, majority of people knew what VPNs even were, uh, there was a time where people were just like, damn, I guess I just, you know, porn went underground, which I think is fascinating. Um, yeah. Anyway. I know I broke character for this. I was supposed to just read the whole time, but fuck it, dude. I thought this would be funnier. I don't really find it that funny anymore. It was only good for like one episode, but guess what? I have books lined up for the next like seven episodes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're going to learn to like it. Books on tape. Because of their services, continuous contact on the beat, and mutual dependency, the powerful can use personal relationships, threats, and rewards to further influence and coerce the media. The media may feel obligated to carry extremely dubious stories and mute criticism in order not to offend their sources and disturb a close relationship. It is very difficult to call authorities on whom one depends for daily news liars, even if they tell whoppers. <laughs> Critical sources may be avoided not only because of their lesser ability and higher cost of establishing credibility, but also because the primary sources may be offended and may even threaten the media using them. Powerful sources may also use their prestige and importance to the media as a lever to deny critics access to the media. The Defense Department, for example, refused to participate in national public radio discussions of defense issues if experts from the Center for Defense Information were on the program. Elliot Abrams refused to appear on a program on human rights in Central America at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University unless the former ambassador, Robert White, was excluded as a participant. Claire Sterling refused to participate in television network shows on the Bulgarian connection where her critics would appear. 
I don't know. Hmm. Noam Chomsky is so fucking hot, dude. Fucking Noam Chomsky, dude. He's fucking... I don't know. Is he like 90-some now? I think he's hot as... Hot as balls. <laughs> that dude can fucking get it. On some real shit, bro. I'm looking at pics of Noam Chomsky right now, dude. <sighs> I love reading Noam Chomsky's propaganda. <laughs> I love reading Noam Chomsky's uh, communist manifesto in novel form. It's called Manufacturing Consent. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, I disagree necessarily. I just, you know, just keep it in mind in case you don't know who he is. In case you got this far into the show, to this episode and, and cared. Clearly, most people click to the end, like you, uh, to get to the cum shot. But uh, I don't think people will. I don't think, I think, I think people are getting tired of this shtick already. <sighs> but I'm sure I'm going to get lots of uh, Noam Chomsky fans. I'm definitely going to tag him. Hopefully as people will get in touch with me. See if we can get a, get a book tour going. You know, I think that's the only way to, how anyone, you're going to get anyone younger than uh, maybe 30 to read Noam Chomsky's writing. Uh, that isn't fucking boring. <laughs> uh, is to get someone who's jerking off, literally someone jerking off reading it. And maybe that's not even enough. I think that's the unfortunate part of this is that, uh, hmm, I don't know. It, it might have to be like me fucking Noam Chomsky in the ass while he, while I read the book, you know? It might have to be that. Um, I don't know how people read. I don't know how anyone reads anymore. <sighs> when there's so much dick in the way, you know? There's so much porn to be watched. There's so much media to be consumed that isn't books. So what? why would you sit and read a book? I actually don't know. I actually don't know what the incentive is aside from seeming cultured and signaling to women that you might, you at least are putting in the effort of appearing intelligent to some degree or that perhaps you can at least read or you can at least signal the fact that maybe you acknowledge that Women will like it if you carry a book with you or that it's the only book you ever carry with you and that you hope that someone will ask you about it so that you can say, I have no idea. That's what I carry this book for. I have never finished this book. I've tried reading this book many times. Uh, I read bits and pieces. I get lost in the details. And they don't do a good job of bringing you back to the bigger picture, aside from the probably the first and the last chapter of this book, which I've read. 
Uh, all the details in the middle are just examples of, uh, they're just endless examples, which are all important, you know, um, but it's almost like you don't want to read them unless it's happened in the past 10 years. You know, if it was Noam Chomsky, obviously you can, you can hear about Noam Chomsky talking about BLM if you want. You can talk, you can listen to him talk about, I, w I don't know. I wonder what he thinks about Ukraine, but it's like, it's, it, 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 it's all the same. It's all the same. It's all under one same, one same model, I think, just tweaked for the modern era. I don't know if, I don't think Noam Chomsky uses Instagram, although I, that, that would be pretty cool if he did. Uh, I don't think he's on Twitter. Uh, I don't think he has an OnlyFans, but that might be the way to get the word out. Um, if you made a video of Noam Chomsky eating pussy, moaning his prop propaganda model into your hot, wet, tight cunt, you know, I'm going to watch that. And I'm gonna listen, um, but yeah, not the not the current reality. Anyway, anyway, I'm a philosopher now. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna be a porn star and a philosopher and a linguist now. You might as well just call me an an activist of sorts. Sorry for the late episode and sorry for the perhaps minimal cum shot you will receive today. I started having sex again and I'm worried it's going to affect the quality of my work. I think being an incel was actually pretty inspiring. Uh, I think being an incel helped me to focus but it also helped me save my cum, which if you don't know, is your life force, is a man's life force. And I wasn't dispensing it more than really once or twice a week. You know, once for the once for the show, and maybe once for another video I might have done, or maybe during a cam show. Okay. Which I'm still doing. I'm still on uh stream eight cammodels.com, whatever, check it out. But, uh, I started, I, I had sex. I've had been having sex. Unfortunately, you know, I'm no longer honest to the kind of content I make. I thought I was making content for incels, for incels, by incels, Phoebe, <laughs> Phoebe, <laughs> Um, but unfortunately I'm now living a lie and I am drained of my, my life essence. I'm drained of my motivation for even doing porn, for making jerk off vids. I'm lost again. And you might say, Hey, Hey, Geraldo, why don't you just stop having sex? You might say that. You might be thinking that, hey, Geraldo, stop having sex. Don't fuck me. Even if I were there, I wouldn't fuck you because I respect you, your, your body and your cum, and I would not want you to, to waste it on me. 
don't waste it on me, the girl from Oklahoma. Don't waste it on me, the 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 man, the young man from the Philippines. Don't waste your come on me, Geraldo. Don't don't even think about it. And um That's all. So, you know, if I seem off moving forward, it's because I'm fucking. That's all. Just, I just wanted to just wanted to acknowledge it. I just wanted to be transparent and be honest with you guys because I, I, you know, I know that's what you've come to expect from me is, is honesty. And I just don't want to break that trust. So I am having sex. I will not be posting videos of me having sex. I just am, I am coming. So my work will suffer. <laughs> I may begin practicing semen retention. And so this show will lose all appeal. Although it would be funny just to jerk off for a complete hour and then not come at the end. That would be kind of funny. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> Start, starting next week, perhaps I'll do that. Um, but yeah, you should stop coming. Whether you're a man or a woman. Or, or anything in between, you should stop coming for sure. For sure. It makes people dull. You lose your edge. You're not alert. You're not observant to what's happening around you. After you come, you don't see the propaganda. You're too tired. You smoke weed. You jerk off and, uh, and you pop a pill and you go to sleep and you don't think about anything else because you don't have to think about anything. And that's by design. Good for you. But if you're a Sigma male like me, you're going to stay sharp. You're going to, you're hypervigilant and no one can take that away from you. You know what's going on. You see the bigger picture. You're better than everyone. You listen to Sigma male affirmation videos on YouTube every day while you work out two hour videos of a guy saying people are assets You are the coolest person in the room. You are a lone wolf. And uh, in fact, there are no wolves other than you. You're the only one. That's what I actually mean.
have some videos in the works. Hope you like. I've been working on like all of them in a chunk, but I'm going to release them over the course of like three months. So it seems like, I don't know, I'm working regularly, but just know I was inspired in a fit of uh, inspiration and rage. And I made a bunch of content for you, for you specifically, for you, the person who, who, who either sat through an hour or skipped to the end, but either way still put the effort, some minimal effort into getting to this, this point in your life. And, uh, these are for you. Those videos I'm about to put out, they're absolutely for you. And I hope you enjoyed them. <sighs> My alternative porn name is Moan Domsky, by the way. Or, or actually, it would be funny to just if if Geraldo sends the cease and desist. I think uh, I think just changing my name to Noam Chomsky would be very good. I think that that that'll have to be it. Anyway, I'm gonna end this with a quick Bible verse from the the Book of Mormon. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, in fine, they did pervert the ways of the Lord in very many instances. Therefore, for this cause, Alma and his brethren went into the land to preach the word unto them. Now, when they had come into the land, behold, to their astonishment, they found that the Zoramites had built synagogues and that they did gather themselves together on one day of the week, which day they did call the day of the Lord, and they did worship after a manner which Alma and his brethren had never beheld. For they had built a place built in the center of their synagogue, a place for standing, which was high above the head, and the top thereof would only admit one person. Therefore, whoever, whosoever desired to worship must go forth and stand upon the top thereof, and stretch forth his hands towards heaven and cry with a loud voice saying, Holy, Holy God, we believe thou art God. And we believe that thou art holy and that thou wast a spirit and that thou art a spirit and that thou will be a spirit forever. God, Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren. And we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers. But we believe that thou hast elected us to be the holy children. And thus thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. Is there anything about sex in here? Dude, where's the part where they fuck in the Bible? I forgot to look it up. Don't worry, I'll do I'm gonna do another Bible episode. Don't this isn't I know you were expecting it, but therefore I write unto you, Gentiles, and also unto you, house of Israel, when the work shall commence, that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance. Yea, behold, I write 
unto all the ends of the earth. Yeah, unto you, 12 tribes of Israel, who shall be judged according to your works by the 12 whom Jesus chose to be his disciples in the land of Jerusalem. And I write also unto the remnant of this people who shall also be judged by the 12 whom Jesus chose in this land. And they shall be judged with the other 12 whom Jesus chose in the land of Jerusalem. Is this book just repetitive or am I just reading the same thing? Am I reading the same line over and over? I can't tell. And these things doth the spirit manifest unto me. And therefore I write unto you all. And for this, because I write unto you that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is for the thumbnail. <laughs> There's not, I didn't even get the version with pictures in it. Fuck. One of my best friends growing up was Mormon. <laughs> and uh, in a way, this is a tribute to my, my late friend, 
my estranged friend from childhood. Anyway, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Until next time, go kill yourself. (laughs) 